Greetings, everyone. Good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. We rejoice and we're glad in it. God did good this morning, didn't he? It's a beautiful day. I hope that you're doing okay. And uh, if you've joined us online this morning, welcome to you. We're thrilled that you've joined us. Welcome to the party. So glad to see everyone today. We are continue with the story now. Last week, we discovered the birth of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld God because we have seen Jesus, and it's the greatest revelation in all of human history. So we're thankful for Jesus. And today we want to talk about his public ministries. It's getting started, and so we will do that as we follow in chapter 23 of the story. If you do not have a book called The Story and you're keeping up with the reading, grab a book on the way out. Um, We'll sell you a bundle of them for 20 bucks. We'll sell you one copy for five bucks. If you can't afford a book, we will give you a book. So stop making excuses and grab one and keep up because it's so important. And next week we will uh, cover chapter 24 of the story and that's entitled No Ordinary Man. We'll talk about the miracles of Jesus and his ministry. It should be fun. So today let me just remind you that God has made all of us all meaning all, all of us on purpose and with purpose. We all have been placed in the world right now by the design of God. You are not an accident. You are not a coincidence. You you are not casually here. God has, has made you on purpose with purpose. And the reason we know that is because Jesus came into the world on purpose. He becomes for us the greatest model that we have. He came on purpose right at the proper stroke of the divine clock. He came right on time. And he was not only here on purpose, but he was here on mission, determined intentionally to fulfill his destiny in the world. And so too, if Jesus models for us the best pattern for human life, then we too can believe that God has called us on purpose and with a destiny. You are here for a reason. God has his hand on your life, so you be encouraged to know that. Today I want to talk about the ministry of Jesus, the early ministry of Jesus, and I want to take four snapshots, four pictures of Jesus in the world as he begins his ministry. It's on your outline on the app, and here's the first point. I want to discuss the baptism of Jesus. Now, this is early on. Look at Matthew chapter 3 on the screen with me. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, this is John the Baptist. We learned about him last week, his parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth. He is a cousin of Jesus, and so they have a relationship there. And so John Baptist has this ministry. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so for now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Refer to that phrase in just a moment. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son, Whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So now notice, Jesus goes to Galilee to be baptized by John Baptist, and John was preparing the way. He was a precursor prophet. He was the one who was making a way in the wilderness. 
and he was preaching a message of repentance. Repent means to turn, turn away from your sins, to change your mind about the direction of your life. And so to repent means that I'm going to turn away from my old life and I'm going to turn toward the life God has promised me. So that's repentance. And so he, his message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or in other words, the kingdom of God is near us. The kingdom of God is close. And he's referring, of course, to Jesus and his entrance into the world. And so John Baptist is preaching to people, repent of your sins, turn away from your sins, and be baptized. Now, this is the first introduction of this whole idea of being baptized. And it's, it's, a, it's a moment where, where people are asked to be cleansed of their sins. So you repent of your sins, and the work of forgiveness that God does can be symbolized can, can, can be a sign of that forgiveness and cleansing by coming to the water and being baptized. And so the, the water, the symbol, the act of baptism is, is a reflection of the cleansing and forgiveness that we experience from our sins. Baptism then is an outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace. We ask God to forgive us, his cleansing mercy cleanses us of our sin, and we acknowledge that, we give public witness to that, we symbolize that, we, act, we follow in obedience as a sign of that, we go to the water, and we are baptized, representing that cleansing from sin. Jesus made his way to the Jordan, and when John Baptist saw him, he said, he said I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. And so we asked the question, why was Jesus intentional about being baptized? Well, we know that he didn't have to repent of his sins because he was sinless. So what is he doing? I think it's so that God's will would be done and the mission of Jesus would be clearly achieved. The phrase that he used with John Baptist again was to fill, fulfill all righteousness. And so therefore, he submitted to being baptized by John. So Jesus, in his baptism, wasn't there on his benefit, but but to remind us that he wants to identify with us. He wants to associate with us. He's saying in his baptism, I'm with you. I love you. There is hope for you. I want to identify with you. So he's identifying with those he came to save. So for Jesus, baptism was an act of obedience to God's mission for his life to die for the sins of the world. Are you following me okay so far? Legalists were sent to check on John's baptism, and so these Pharisees stood on the bank of the Jordan watching John baptize, and they concluded, this isn't necessary. This is, this is foolishness. Uh, we, we don't need to be baptized because we are already righteous, and the reason we are already righteous is because we follow all the rules. We keep the law, so we don't know what this guy's doing. Besides, he's a little weird. You know, he lives in the, lives in the sticks and eats bugs and... He's a, he's a mess. His hair's unkept, so forth. <laughs> we could get into John Baptist's profile, but that's not necessary. So Jesus is identifying with us. And then a very intimate moment happens as he's coming out of the water of baptism and the Spirit of God settles on him like a dove and a voice out of heaven cries out and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now these are words that every son and every daughter should hear from their father. I'm going to get back on this soapbox now. 
because there's some people within the sound of my voice today have never heard me talk about this. This is a big deal. The words that a father says to their children. This is huge. My own practice in life as a father, a grandfather now, and my observation through the years, I am convinced that the self-identity of a young human being is largely formed by the words their father speaks to them or fails to speak to them. This is a big deal. This is a huge issue. And so God models for us in his son, Jesus Christ, at his baptism, I love this boy. I'm proud of this boy. This boy's got what it takes. You listen to him. I'm well pleased with him. And these are words that every son and every daughter needs to hear from their father. I love you. I'm proud of you. You've got what it takes. You've got the right stuff. You are precious. You are valuable. You're the most precious thing in the world to me. You say those words to your sons and daughters, and it will literally shape the foundations of their self-identity. They will believe about themselves what God believes about them, which is true. They're loved. They're esteemed. They're valued. They have potential. Say the words. Fathers often push back. Well, my father never said those words to me. Okay. Well, those pants that you're wearing right now, you pull them up. And you say the words. Don't, don't give me the excuse I didn't receive what I needed from my dad. That happens. That happens a lot, unfortunately. But you now know what your children need from you. And so you give what they need. And by the way, God, your heavenly father, stands ready to reparent you. If you never heard the words you needed to hear from your dad, then if you tune into God and his relationship with you, you'll begin to hear him say, I love you, I'm proud of you, you got what it takes. Because God believes in you. And you want to believe what God believes. So say the words. I'm not even sure I can say them. You can say them. Practice. Practice in the mirror. Well, I don't even, you want me to say them if I don't believe it? Yes. Say the words. Fake it till you make it. Say them till you start to believe them yourself. The words have power in your children's lives. Enormous power. Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, heard his father say, I love you, I'm proud of you. You got it. You got this. Jesus came out of the water. I promise you he was going, I can do this. I know who I am, and I'm intentionally on mission to fulfill my destiny. And he is the greatest model for all of us. Let me ask you this question. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, have you been baptized? Have you followed Jesus' example of obedience to the Father and been baptized in water? We are all called to be baptized, to take that step of faith toward the water. Your baptism says you have identity, I'm a follower of Jesus. Your baptism says you have a purpose. I live my life to honor God and to make him known. If you have not been baptized, then what are you waiting for? There's no need to wait. Most of the examples of baptism in the New Testament are people who came to faith in Jesus and were immediately baptized, sometimes within moments of their faith. 
So this isn't something you wait for, something you work up to. This is something you do in obedience to God. So far this year at Union Chapel, we've baptized 140 people to date. That's pretty good, right? Isn't that great? In two weeks, on October 2nd, we will have a baptism interest meeting. That is at, on Sunday at 1130 during that service over in the chapel in two weeks. So you can take that class and get better informed about what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. It doesn't mean you're going to get baptized. Maybe it's an interest meeting. So go to the interest meeting in two weeks at 1130 over in the chapel. And then in three weeks from today, on October 9th, we're going to do our next baptisms here. And we'll go over 150 people for the year, and that will make us halfway of our, toward our goal because we want to baptize 300 people here this year at Union Chapel. 300. That's where we're headed. And you, some of you will be among those. What are you waiting for? This is not something to be casual about. This is something to be intentional about. And so I encourage you to engage this act of obedience to follow Jesus to the water. Amen. Now, the second vignette, this picture that I want you to see, is the temptation of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 on the screen. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he goes south of Jerusalem toward the Dead Sea. And as he, you go south from Jerusalem toward the Dead Sea, you encounter this wilderness. It becomes a desert wilderness the closer to the sea you, 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 you become. Now, Jesus there goes to the wilderness, and he fasts for 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, three temptations come to Jesus by the devil. And these temptations are related to his identity, who he is in the world, and his mission, what he's there to accomplish. And these three temptations come in these forms. First, the devil tests Jesus by saying, I know you've been fasting 40 days, you must be hungry. Why don't you turn the stones here around us into bread? Turn the stones to bread. The devil says, look, you're creator God. You can do whatever you want. You can, you can manage this very easily. And then you'll have something to eat. You must be hungry. Jesus' response to that temptation was to quote the scripture. And he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so now we get insight into how to resist temptation, that you are informed by the word of God and you speak the word of God in response to the temptation. It's very powerful. The second temptation came in the form of being taken to a high place. The devil says, cast yourself down off this high place and it's no problem for you because you know and I know that God will send his angels to catch you and you'll be perfect, perfectly safe and there's no way you're going to be harmed by jumping off a high place. And Jesus again responds by saying, it is written, you shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. And so he overcomes the temptation. The third temptation is a rather dramatic one. God, is, God in the form of Jesus is taken to a place where the devil shows him the kingdoms of the world. All, the whole world, the kingdoms of the world, the riches of the world, all of the pleasures of the world are set before Jesus and the devil says, look, that mission you're on, it's really not necessary. Plus, it's, it's got to be a huge burden and hassle to you, knowing what it's going to take for you re to redeem the world. 
He said, why bother with that? The world is here. I'll put the world at your, I will give you the world if you just discard that mission and bow down to me. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. The plan of God, the call of God, the purpose of God is, is too great to surrender even to the riches of the whole world. No, that becomes a lesser thing compared to the wonders that God has in store for those who follow him. And so he resists the temptation. Why did Jesus submit to this testing? This is very important. Look at Hebrews 4.15 on the screen with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So what do we learn from this? That first, he sympathizes with our weakness. He gets us. He understands our vulnerabilities, our temptations. Let me remind you, Jesus was a man with all the attendant physical weaknesses that we have. Hunger, thirst, fatigue, pain. He was tested so he can now identify with us in our weakest moments. One of the scriptures says, if we sin, which is an interesting phrase, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I, I find fascinating the phrase, if we sin. How about just, let's just be more direct. When we sin. Because it's not if we sin, is it? It's just when we sin. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So not only do we have a Savior who empathizes with us in our weakness, in the, in the temptation, in the buffeting that comes to our lives, in the physical and mental and emotional strain and, and, and tension and fatigue that comes to us in, this, in these categories, he can empathize with us because he's been through it, so he identifies with us. But even if we do sin in spite of that, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ who forgives us every time. Someone say, thank God. Thank God for his empathy and his forgiving power. So the temptation of Jesus is dramatic and poignant and important. Here's the third picture. It's the conversation Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. Look at John chapter 3, verse 1 and following. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, what's going on here? Nicodemus, we can surmise, was a really good person. This is a good guy. And Jesus agrees to a meeting with him after hours. It's dark with this ruler. Nicodemus wanting to meet after hours so as to protect his status with the ruling council. He's a Pharisee. He has a good heart, apparently. He's a seeker of truth, we, we surmise, but he still is uncertain if Jesus is actually legit. Can I trust this guy? Is he really from God? So he can't risk, at this point, being seen with Jesus. He might lose his livelihood or his reputation. You can understand. But Nicodemus recognizes Jesus as someone special, and so he comes to Jesus. Everybody knows who Nicodemus is. I mean, he is upper echelon in the culture. He's, he, he's a ruler. He is established. 
He's got incredible status. Jesus would have known about this guy. And so, and so this meeting, and Nicodemus now is stepping way, way out of the protocol by saying to Jesus, look, I think, it, it seems to me you're special. You're doing things that I suspect can't be done unless God is with you. I'm trying to figure out if you're, if you're with God or not. Because Nicodemus, he's got a good heart. He's trying hard to figure out what the truth is. And Nicodemus is being complimentary to Jesus, trying to break the ice and, and warm up in a conversation. Jesus totally disregards his attempts to be cordial. He just... Basically, Jesus is going, dude, I know who you are, but I don't care who you are. doesn't matter who you are. You're a guy. You're just a guy. Here you are. You're standing in front of me. I've taken a meeting with you after hours. And so the first words out of Jesus' mouth to this good fellow's attempt to be cordial to Jesus is, you know, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Whoa, what are we talking about here? Jesus moves immediately to a conversation about birth. Nicodemus says, well, yeah, yeah, we've all been born. What do you mean born again? Jesus said, well, there's a natural birth you're aware of. We're all aware of. It's, it's a birth of water. It's natural. We've all been born. Our mothers gave birth to us, and here we are. It's a natural event. Jesus said, though, that there's another birth required in order to get into the kingdom status, in order to qualify for that presence, that citizenship. And there has to be a spiritual birth. And the whole implication, of course, of a new birth is that this is a new start, a new beginning, a second chance. This is a new life, a new birth. You know, here's a brand new baby only in spiritual form. And it's, it's miraculous. It's amazing. And so it's in this context with his conversation with Nicodemus that we get perhaps the most famous biblical verse in all of the scripture. More people probably know this verse than any other verse in history. It's John chapter 3, verse 16. It's in the context of the conversation with Nicodemus, and Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There. There it is. In other words, he reminds Nicodemus that you cannot earn your way to salvation. You have to receive it as a gift that God alone can provide. This wonderful truth. So watch this now. Nicodemus was intelligent. He's socially astute. He's, he's all polished up. He's educated. He's respected. He's respectful to Jesus. He's a religious leader of the highest order. You might conclude, you know, this is a good guy. And a guy who's so honorable and so good and so actually thoughtful, he probably doesn't need Jesus' help. But the first thing Jesus does to this really good guy is remind him, you must be born again. You must be born again of the Spirit. You must have a new spiritual birth. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, let's move then to the, first, the fourth conversation, this picture in Jesus' early ministry, a conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. Look at John chapter 4, 
beginning at verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. So in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. The last phrase of that passage, verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Now remember, I've told you that you are here on purpose, that you have a destiny, that you should live your life with intentionality, and the reason we should do that is because Jesus has modeled for us what it looks like to live a life on purpose and intentional with a destiny in mind. And so Jesus is in the south in Judea, and he has to go north to Galilee. Now, the way the geography laid out is if you're in the south in Judea and you need to get to Galilee, you've got to go through the middle section of the country, which is Samaria. The Jews had a very strong racial bias against the Samaritans. Now, this went back hundreds of years when the Jews intermarried with foreigners that were brought in by the Assyrians during the captivity. So one of the punishments of overrunning Israel back in the day was the Assyrians actually transported other people from other cultures and religions, other pagan cultures, into, into Israel at the time. And there were a group of people, Jews at the time, who began to intermarry and intermingle their cultures and their religions with these with these foreigners. So the Jews hated the Samaritans for it. They despised them. They loathed them because they felt like they had compromised. So the Jews traditionally went around Samaria. If you're in Judea and you got to go north of Galilee, they would go around. In other words, they would, they would go east. They would go east along the Jordan River and follow the river up and then around to Galilee, or they'd go west along the Mediterranean coast and follow it that way. You know, they'd take an extra day of travel just so they didn't have to run into any of those stinky Samaritans. It's amazing. Jesus, on the other hand, he has to go through Samaria. Now, now what, is, what is the answer to that? Because he doesn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, I'm sure his, his, his disciples probably went, we're going through Samaria? We never go through Samaria. Jesus said, I got to go through Samaria because Jesus is living his life on purpose. He's intentional. He's, he's got a mission to fulfill. He's, he's living his life with great intentionality. And so he's going once again on purpose. He was intentionally communicating the message that salvation is for all people in all places, including Samaria. It's an important message. Now, it's about a three days walk from Judea to Galilee, and this is how we pick up the story. John chapter 4, verse 7. Look on the screen. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, just as Jesus had done with Nicodemus, he now turns the conversation from natural water to spiritual water. He said, if you only knew, you could ask me and all the thirsting of your soul would be satisfied. 
Now, let me just make a statement that all of you who know Jesus can identify with, that there is an ache in our soul that nothing else could fill until we met Jesus. Some of you are new enough Christians that this is very, very uh, current in your mind, in your experience. Those of us who who followed Jesus for a long time, we, we tend to forget just how lost and how empty and how searching and how, how desperate we were. But some of you who are new to the faith, you identify with this very quickly, very easily, because as it turns out, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human being that only God can fill. And what we have discovered, and you have discovered if you have invited Jesus Christ to be in your life, is that God has now filled that ache, that that emptiness, that desperation in your heart and your soul, and now you know that you are a whole person because you have met the one who loves you. And so we identify with that. So please note who Jesus is saying this to. This is a Samaritan and a particular woman. Now, we have to follow this. If you were to grade the status of people in the culture, you know, these are the people at the highest level of recognition and status in that particular culture, and these are next and next and next. If you got to the bottom of the list, the bottom of the rung, you would find this woman. In fact, if they were producing a survey, the results of a survey, who's on top and who's on bottom, she may not even make the list. People in her culture would probably just ignore the fact that she's even alive. Let me tell you why. First of all, she's a Samaritan. We've already rehearsed that. She's hated by the Jews for this intermarrying and the subsequent apostasy, so they're not worthy of God's attention. Second of all, she's a woman. Let me remind you, this is a patriarchal culture that diminished the role of women, and so men, therefore, should not be casually talking to a strange woman, especially a Samaritan woman. And then thirdly, she is an outcast. Let me explain. Jesus reveals to her and she admits that she has been married five times. And the man she's currently living with is not her husband. So now we have part of the backstory. And you should know in first century Israel, only the man could initiate a divorce. The woman could not initiate a divorce. And there were three reasons that a man could initiate divorce in the first century. First, the wife was unclean, or second, the wife was unlovable, or third, the wife was incapable of fulfilling her marital duties. So the man was then required to publicly divorce his wife, and he had to do it three times. Now, this list of reasons, unclean, unlovable, incapable, basically what that meant is a man could come up with any kind of charges to divorce his wife. But in order to do it, he had to do it publicly. So he had to go out in the public square, bring his wife with him, gather a crowd, and publicly denounce her or essentially publicly shame her three different times. Now imagine this woman. She's been shamed by her first husband, not once, not twice, but three times. She's not worthy to be a wife. She's shameful. She should be outcast. I'm divorcing her. One, two, and three times with husband number one, and then with husband number two, and then with husband number three. Are you starting to feel that? And then with husband number four. 
And then with husband number five. Now she's hanging on to a man she's not married to because she doesn't want to become a beggar or a prostitute. There's no safety net for women in first century Palestine. So this is why she hasn't come to the well early in the morning with the other women. She is totally, totally rejected. The women as a social moment early in the cool of the day will gather their pots and go to the well, collect the water for the day and return. But she's there at high noon, the heat of the day, because she's not welcome. She's not welcome anywhere. She's not welcome with the other women. She's outcast. She's living a life of total brokenness and shame. She's alone. We, we are left to only imagine what she has been through in her life. I want to submit to you something right now. I, I predict to you that the Samaritan woman at the well is very popular in heaven today. I suspect that she's been placed in a very prominent location and anyone coming by who's willing to celebrate with her will, will stop and listen to her share her story. It goes something like this in summary. I was broken into a thousand pieces and Jesus... <laughs> And Jesus made a special trip so I could be made whole. I'm sorry, I'm never sure when that's going to hit me. I don't do emotions very well. My wife's not here today either. Usually I ask her, how am I doing? She'll say, oh, you're happy today. Oh, good. That's fantastic. <laughs> Glad to know that. It's helpful. Maybe you're like Nicodemus today. You may be all polished up in your life. You're a good person. People like you. Maybe you're well-educated, well-positioned. You have a lot of responsibility. You're high on the rung of the social status. You're honorable. A lot of us are in that category, certainly within the sound of my voice today. But here's what Jesus would say. He would say to all of us who identify with Nicodemus, he would say to us, you must be born again. You must humble yourself, repent of your sins, and ask God for his mercy and his forgiveness. And oftentimes when people in the Nicodemus category hear that challenge, they push back. Wait a minute. I'm a good person. I do my very best to be honorable. Compared to other people I know, I'm exceptional. And I just believe that God will accept me 
because I've tried to be good and honorable in my life, try to be a decent human being. And I think that's enough. I think good people go to heaven. And only bad people, really bad people don't. And so thanks, thanks for the admonition to repent of my sins and humble myself before God and seek his mercy and forgiveness, but no thanks. Now, if that's your response, that's your pushback, then okay, okay to you. But I want you to get a glimpse of something that I've noticed, that any time in the New Testament Gospels, when we see Jesus being rejected in, in Scripture, he never, ever, not once, does he chase that person and beg them to reconsider. The rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him what he had to do. And he was unwilling to do it. And so he walked away, sad, but walked away. The Bible does not say Jesus chased him. Now, please, please reconsider. You have so much potential. You'd be such a great Christian leader. You've got all, you've got all these benefit, assets and capacities. Please reconsider. None of that. Sometimes entire crowds of people walked away from Jesus. Not once do you see Jesus chasing after people saying, you should reconsider. This is really serious. This is very important. And so if you're a person in that category of just figuring you're good enough, you've got your own plan of salvation, then I say to you, good luck to you. Because you're going to need it. Maybe you're more like this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. You may be a person with a lot of brokenness in your life. You have a life story so challenging it's hard even for you to imagine you've lived it. You have a story of brokenness, of pain, of rejection, maybe abuse, abandonment. You struggle with the gospel message not, not because... You already feel good about yourself. You struggle with the gospel message because you cannot imagine anyone would love you so much as to give his life for you. And I know I'm talking to people in this category. And if I am, listen, I've got really, really good news for you. Good news is not only... Has someone found you, despite your life and your story and all the consequences of it, the brokenness in it, despite all of that, there is someone who found you worthy to be loved, loved so lavishly and so greatly that he was willing to lay down his life just for you. No greater love exists That a man lay down his life for his friend. And you have already been found worthy. The great challenge for you is to imagine that it's true. And I'm here to announce to you today, in the authority of God and his word, it is true. You are loved, accepted, and forgiven in the, in the relationship you can establish with Jesus Christ. Glory to God for his amazing grace. Wonderful. So wonderful. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. 
Somewhere, everyone here within the sound of my voice is on the continuum somewhere. Really good, really not so good, and everywhere in between. But it doesn't matter, does it, where we are, only that we recognize that God loves us with an unconditional love, and he's made provision for us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And by a simple act of obedience and faith, you can receive for yourself the gift of life. Your sins can be washed away. The void in your life and your heart filled, satisfied. Your thirst is quenched. And you can find the life that God has offered you. Praise God. Could we pause and just contemplate these things for a few moments and pray? Thank you so much. Let me ask you this question. Have you intentionally, purposefully received Jesus Christ into your life? Have you done that? If you have not done that, could I appeal to you today that the step you take to receive Jesus Christ is a simple step. It's a prayer that sounds something like this. God, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. I repent of my sins. Turn my back, change my mind. I want to follow Jesus. I want him in my life. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Give me the power to live my life from this day forward in ways that honor you and influence others. And thank you for all the things you've done for me, things that I did not deserve, things I have not earned but are afforded to me because of your love and mercy. Thank you. Let me ask you this question. Have you intentionally been baptized? It's an act of obedience. It's following Jesus to the water. It's a public witness and testimony of the cleansing work to forgive your sins. It's an important step. Have you intentionally been baptized? I encourage you to think about taking that step. Let me ask you this question. Are you intentionally trying to get more of his word into your life so you can stand firm and resist the temptations of life? This is how Jesus managed temptation. Chances are it'll work for us as well. So I encourage you today to think about investing more of your time in understanding the story. It'll help you. It'll fortify your life. It'll strengthen you. It'll give you the perspective you need as the challenges of life unfold before you. Lord, in all of these ways, we thank you for your amazing grace, your sufficiency at every area of our lives. We thank you for these simple stories from the life of Jesus that so inspire and model for us what it means to follow you. 
So I got, God, I pray you would meet each one of us today at the point of our need so that we would be better equipped to serve and follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Would you stand with us?